Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. We looked at the first half last week, and we'll be looking at the, the rest of this chapter this week. Jesus is pretty heavy-hitting in these chapters, um, so just forewarning. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 15, we'll begin reading at verse 14, even though our main text is 18 through the end of the chapter. 14, though, we're going to start to just give us a little context. And this is Jesus talking. You are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. And that is the definition of discipleship. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now our text. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours too. They will also treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. And if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But as it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And, also test- and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. This is his word. You can be seated. <clears throat> so the context of all this is Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate Passover Uh, Jesus scored big. He found a great room in the upper city. They're all gathered in that space. And this celebration quickly turns into a farewell dinner because Jesus drops the bomb and says, guys, I'm leaving you. And he is because in less than 24 hours from saying that, he will be hanging on a Roman cross. And so the disciples who are pretty much clueless up until this moment are now horrified when they hear Jesus say this. They're devastated. They're crushed. And what John provides in his gospel is four whole chapters of how Jesus just coaches them through this, how he pastors these guys. He answers their questions. And more importantly, how he just gives them hope for what their future holds without him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been part of something, whether it's a team or a business, a ministry, that heavily relied on one person, where so much of 
its success or what it was about was all about that one. And when that person leaves, you're like, okay, it's over. We can't go on with this person. It's dead. Well, that's the situation that the disciples are in on steroids. Um, of course, the devastation that these guys are feeling is that Jesus is leaving, but uh, they're also devastated that they, this, this thing that they've given their life to, in their minds, it's finished. But see, this is the power of discipleship, something the church has not been that good at. Because what the church has done has made it all about the one. The one and then an audience of spectators. Of course, that's not crossroads. We're, we're fighting into this. We together are fighting into this and, and, and pursuing discipleship. Because what happens when we're not about disciples making disciples, a church, and this could apply to a business or a team, when it's all about the one, uh, when the one is finished, the whole thing is finished. But discipleship is legacy. And see, these guys that are with Jesus, they don't even know this, but they're trained, they're prepared to change the world. And so when Jesus leaves, the movement isn't over. Are you kidding? It's just getting started. In fact, when you go to the book of Acts, this is just months from this moment that we, that we just read, just months. Uh, some of these disciples are brought uh, before the elites of their day, and this is what they say about them. Uh, when they saw the courage, the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, in Jesus' day, there are many rabbis who had disciples. So Jesus is not unique in this. But where Jesus breaks the protocol, because in that first century world, the way... Uh, a rabbi would have disciples, is a disciple would pick their rabbi the way that a student today would pick their college. Jesus broke with this. Jesus chose his disciples. He prayerfully, thoughtfully chose them. Now, if you've ever been chosen for a great task, you know how, how honoring and exalting that is. Imagine Jesus could have picked anybody, and he picks you. He chooses you for the simple task of going out to, to change the world. And this is what Jesus is reminding these guys when they're just devastated. He says, guys, you didn't pick me. I picked you. I chose you. I appointed you. I discipled you. I trained you. And now I'm sending you out to bear fruit to change the world. Let's go. And this is not going to be a walk in the park because now Jesus said, the world that I'm sending you into, it's going to hate you. In fact, it's going to hate you to the same extent that it hated me. Now, Jesus never tells us what we want to hear. He never sugarcoats what we need to hear. Guys, 
I'm sending you into the world, and the world's going to hate you. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Because he says it a lot in these verses. He said it in other places in John. At the end of this whole thing, before they... Before he gets arrested, he's going to pray this long prayer. And part of his prayer is about how the world's going to hate his disciples. God, would you just protect them? Now, what does he mean by this? Well, let's start with the meaning of the, of the word world. I mean, this is a word that John uses a lot in his gospel, 78 times in all. Almost half the occurrences in the New Testament. And he uses it five times in just two verses, in verses 18 and 19. Now, this word world has nuanced meanings in John's gospel. In the original language, it's the Greek word cosmos. And sometimes in John's gospel, cosmos can mean the universe. Other times it can mean the people of the cosmos or the people of the world. And sometimes it just refers to the world system, its values, ideologies, lifestyle, pursuits. Now, all these uses of world all have one thing in common that kind of binds them all together, and it's this. They are all fallen. The universe is fallen. The people of the world are fallen, and therefore the values and the ideas and our lifestyle, it's fallen. I mean, if you think about the world, it's not what God created it to be. It's sick. It's infected. And why is the world sick? It's because the people of the world are sick. Because we are not what God made us to be. And Romans 8 talks about this. It talks about all the groaning that goes on, how creation groans, how it's in pain. Because it's waiting, eagerly waiting for humanity to get its act together. And why is it waiting for this? Because of the massive role that God has placed on humans when he created the world. This world goes as humans go, which is why God made us in his image and according to his likeness, we were made like God to perfectly reflect God in so doing to infuse God's world uh, with his light and life. And until we are made right, until our relationship with God is made right, the whole world, the world system, its values, pursuits, lifestyle, ideologies won't be right until we are made right. It's fallen. It's corrupt. All of it. Because it's a reflection of us. And we've been called to reflect God. And we're not. And humanity's state right now is, is worse than just not being right. Humanity is hostile towards God. This is why Jesus says over and over again, the world hates me. The world hates me. He says it at least five times in our text. Or read uh, Romans 8, verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's ways, nor can it do so. Verses like this are, are, are all over 
the New Testament. That in our natural state, we don't just disbelieve God. We don't just resist God. We hate God. And I know a lot of people want to think, no, we're, we're, we're so much better than that. Don't, 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 don't go that far, Rod. I mean, a lot of people want to disbelieve this. I know some of you right now are saying, hey, that ain't me. I might not be that excited about Jesus. I might even not believe in Jesus, but right now I do not hate Jesus. Well, the Bible begs to differ. Jesus begs to differ. Because this hate goes all the way back to Eden. Like Adam, we want God's job. We want to call the shots in our life. We want to be in control. We want to be autonomous and in charge of our lives. And this is why the unregenerate heart does far more than just disbelieve God. It hates God. It's mad at him. It's at war with him. And until you know this about your heart, you don't know your heart. Now, there's something else that's behind all of this as well that turns this into kind of a world force. The first time the word world is used in your New Testament, in Matthew 8, verse 9, let me read this. I'm sorry, Matthew 4, verses 8 to 9. This is when Jesus is tempted by Satan. And this is what it says. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this is what he said to Jesus. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. And honestly, I, I, I want Jesus to laugh. And then I want him to say to Satan, Satan, <laughs> you have no power. You have no authority. But Jesus doesn't say that because Satan does. The kingdoms of this world are but pawns in Satan's hand. Which is why even Jesus in John's gospel calls Satan the prince of this world. He rules the kingdoms of this world. Now listen, this shouldn't scare or frighten anyone because Jesus is going to say one chapter later in John chapter 16, he's going to look at his disciples and say, take heart, I've overcome the world. And then in uh, Revelation, John writes that book as well, he writes, the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In other words, Jesus wins, and he has won. But we still need to see today the world for what it is and the dark powers that are behind it and its utter hate for Jesus and not be naive, but have great respect for the power that the world wields. I mean, think about what we've been told our whole life. At a young age, we've been, we, we've been told by all the voices how we need to find our place in this world. 
because the world we've been taught possesses all that we need for life, the good life. So we battle and we fight because we've also been taught it's a dog-eat-dog world. And if we work hard enough, the world system will give us the world stuff and all the things that we need for happiness and meaning and purpose and our sense of worth and significance. And then if we achieve anything in this world, we quickly label it with the word mine. That's mine. I did that. I achieved that. I worked hard for that. That's mine. But then we start looking around and we see what other people have and we covet what we don't have. We find ourselves hoarding what we do have. We're frightened to lose it. And if it's taken away, we feel cheated as if an injustice has occurred. I mean, think right now how much our identity and our security, our sense of worth, our hopes, our dreams are all derived from the world, the stuff of the world. And think about the little piece of the world that, that, that you might have right now. What would happen if it fell apart? Would you fall apart? See, we think we own a piece of the world, but the world really owns us. That's why the Bible says we're slaves to the world. And this is the power of the world. It's powerful. And this is why we have texts like 1 John 2, verse 15, where John says, do not love the world. <laughs> Don't love it. Don't love its values, its beliefs, its ideologies, its stuff, its way of life. Because here's the punch. It's what John says next. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. In other words, this is not a both and. I cannot love the world and love God. Either I'm going to love the Father or I'm going to love the world. I'm going to love the world or I'm going to love the Father. And John explains why that is in the next verse. He says, all that is of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Now, this word for lust, I mean, in the Greek, it's found all over the New Testament. Whenever the New Testament writer wants to talk about what's wrong with the human heart. And they use this word epithemia. Themia in Greek is desire or appetite. Epi is an epi-appetite. It's this uber-appetite. And I think every one of us, I don't just think that, every one of us has these uber-appetites, which are empowered by our eyes, our flesh, and our pride. And the obvious objects of these uber appetites are the big three. Money, sex, power. Look at our world. Look at every realm, every sphere, every kingdom. It's dominated by these three things. I mean, you want a good definition of the world? Money, sex, power. 
But there are also less obvious appetites that are just as powerful in seducing our hearts, whether it be the appetite to be liked, the appetite to look good, the appetite to be noticed, this insatiable need to be right, the need to win, the appetite for control, the appetite to be the best, the appetite for ease and comfort, the appetite for pleasure. And right now, we live in a time where we can feed these appetites a thousand and one different ways and do it so easily. And as we feed them, they only get stronger, causing us to want more, more money, more sex, more ease, more vacation, more house, more rank at my job, more attention, more likes, more social media, more sport, more food. And enough is never enough. And why? John tells us the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, human arrogance, it always needs to be filled, but it's never satisfied. And then John clinches it, verse 17. He says, the world and its appetites is passing away. But the one who does the will of the Father will be forever. In other words, we hitch our heart to the world. And as the world fades, we just fade with it. Or listen to Jesus' brother James in James 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Anybody see any fights, quarrels, conflicts these days? Don't they come from apathemia, these uber appetites, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not trust God. These appetites just reap conflict and division and fighting and quarreling. It's what's behind wars, all of it. But listen to what he says. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. These New Testament writers are not messing around. We cannot be friends with God and friends with the world. We cannot love God and love the world. Or as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love one, hate the other. Either he will be devoted to one, despise the other. He concludes this by saying, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic word for world. And if you want to know why the world hates Jesus... And why it hates people who belong to Jesus. 
It's because of verse 19 in our text. Jesus says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you. But instead, you belong to me. As a branch belongs to a vine, you are in me. You are all in with me. Jesus says, you're my friends. You're my friends. And this is precisely why the world hates us. It's because we don't belong to it. We don't need it for our worth, our happiness, our security, our identity, our satisfaction, because we get all that from Jesus. But here's the question, do we? Do we really get our worth, our happiness, our security, our identity, our satisfaction from Jesus? Or do we get it from the world? Or how about this question? Why are we trying so hard to be friends with Jesus and at the same time friends with the world. Do you, know the, what, do you know what we need to do to actually make this happen? We either have to water down Jesus, which is actually what some of us do. We reinterpret him in a way that makes him more palpable, likable, acceptable to our world. Now think about it, instead of the world being conformed into the image of Christ, we conform Jesus to the image of our world. Or the other thing that we would have to do is just water down our walk with Christ and our talk about Christ. Again, instead of being conformed to Christ, our walk and our talk, we become conformed to the world so we can fit nicely into the world. Are we hated right now? Now, I'm not talking about being hated because you're a Republican or a Democrat, because you're on the right or you're on your left. Don't go there. I'm talking, are we hated? Because to the extent that we listen to Jesus, obey Jesus, follow Jesus, love like Jesus, become like Jesus is the extent to which we'll be hated like Jesus. And yet I think sadly too many Christians today don't listen to Jesus. They're not following Jesus, obeying Jesus, walking his path, becoming like him because they simply don't know him. And the Christ that they follow is really a Christ of their own making because it's a lot easier to have an imaginary friend who we call Jesus because now we can create this non-offensive Jesus and be friends with that Jesus and still be friends with the world. And this is why Jesus follows up verse 15 where he says, guys, you're my friends. I mean, no other God says that. You're my friends with verse 18. Because you're my friends, the world's going to hate you. Because true friendship with Jesus will mean hatred from the world. I mentioned Martin Luther King last week. I mean, Martin Luther King has heroic status in our culture today. I really saw that on Martin Luther King Day. The things that were blogged and... um, Facebook and all the social media, and, and deservedly so. Um, but what I was wondering is how many of those people that are 
MLK, just saying that or whatever, really know who Dr. King was. I mean, I think so many of us know so little about his life, his prophetic voice to our culture on matters of racial and social economic injustice, and, and, and not just what he did, but why he did what he did, and not just what he said, but why he said what he said, and how offensive his life and his words were both to the right and to the left, to conservatives and liberals of his time. 30 times he was put in prison. The last several years of his life, he just knew in his mind and heart that he was going to be killed. He lived with that thought. And sure enough, at the young age of 39, he was assassinated. Now, what was behind him? What was the driving passion of Martin Luther King's life? He loved Jesus. His word was like a fire in his chest. Which is why when he looked at the world around him, he couldn't be silent. He had to speak. He had to act. He had to call our whole nation to repentance. I got a text this week from Joe Jones, a friend of mine. He's pastor at Brown Hutcherson Ministries. He's city commissioner in Grand Rapids. He wrote me this. He said, MLK Day holds a special place in my heart. I've been learning of Dr. King since I was a little boy in Detroit, and my high school is named after him. He's one of my many heroes. I'm still very much a student of King and find it a joy to still learn about him and to read his countless sermons and articles. And then he writes this. He says, one facet of King that I think many forget or perhaps suppress, that although widely celebrated and acclaimed today, he was recognized as one of the most hated men in America in his time. He says, let that sink in for a minute. One of the most hated. You see, people who change, who impact, the prophets who have a calling on their lives like no other, to be that brilliant, that committed, that convicted to the practice of nonviolence and yet that hated. Let's keep pushing for better. Much love, Joe. And so many of us today are, are, are trying so hard to be friends with the world, for the world to look at us and think well of us and to understand us and to like us and to like our Jesus. Listen, if that is what we're about, we will never impact our world. Never. We need to lay this down. The world hates Jesus. And instead, we just need to seek friendship with the Savior. Have him think well of us. Have him say, well done. Now, this begs the question, how do we do this? I mean, who in this room right now likes to be hated or slandered or disliked or rejected or persecuted? 
I mean, we, we need more than a how-to. We, we, we need more than just here are the three steps. We need a power to come into our life. In Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul speaks to this power. He says this. He says, may I never boast or may I never glory in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. I know that's weird. What do you mean boast, Paul? Well, well, to boast, is, 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 it's simply to glory in something. It's to put your confidence in something. It's to find your worth, your value into something. It's, it, it's what you base your life on. It's, it's the most important thing uh, that is in your life right now. That's what you boast in. Martin Luther said, you know what you boast in by how you defend yourself by yourself when things go badly. So when you're rejected, you start saying things, well, I'm lovable because of this. Or when you fail, you say, well, I'm still acceptable because I have this. That's your boast. What is your boast? Is it your money? Your kids? Your accomplishments? Your popularity? Your ministry? Paul says, a Christian is someone who recognizes there is only one thing to boast. And it's Christ and him dying for me. This is the only thing that matters when it comes to my value, my worth, my significance, my goodness. Because then Paul says these words. When I make that my boast, the cross of Christ, when that's my glory, Paul says, I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. I'm no longer controlled by the world. The world doesn't own me. It doesn't phase me. I don't need what it tells me I need. I don't need to become what it says I need to become. I don't need to think the way it says I need to think. It can't worry me, discourage me. It can't make me bitter. He says, I'm dead to the world and the world is dead to me. And I say, wow. How can you say that, Paul? Because the cross is the power that destroys the power of the world. You see, when we boast in the cross, when we make that our glory, we get what the cross says about us. And yes, the cross says that I am that messed up, that the God of the universe had to do that to fix me. And that's good for me because that humbles me. But it also says that I'm also that loved. I am worth that much to God. I mean, we just sang it this morning. I'm glad that Pastor Mo had us sing it over and over again. Oh, how he loves us. He loves us. And he doesn't just love us with words. There is a stake in the ground called a cross. That screams at how much he loves you. How much he values you. The one who made you, who knows you to the very bottom of your being. Knows the thoughts you had today already. 
knows some of the misdeeds you've already done. He knows it all. He loves you to the skies. And not only do we have the cross, but John says we have the Holy Spirit. In our text in verse 26, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And I love that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate because you know what an advocate is? An advocate is someone who comes alongside of us and stands with us to defend us. Remember in John 8, that woman caught in adultery. All her accusers were ready to destroy her. And this woman in that moment took hold of Jesus. She looked to Jesus. And Jesus in that moment went from sitting down and doodling in the sand to standing. And why did he stand? To say to her accusers and to this woman, I stand with her. I stand to defend her. That's an advocate. I love in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, and they pronounce this death sentence upon Stephen. This is what the text says. It says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. (laughs) Did you notice that little detail? This significant court just condemns Stephen to die, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit opens heaven, and Stephen sees Jesus not sitting, as the Bible always describes him. He sits at the right hand. But now it says he's standing. And why is Jesus standing? Because like that adulterous woman, as this human court is condemning him, the only court that matters is applauding him, standing with him, commending him. And the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. It shines the spotlight on Christ. Do you see him, Rod? Do you see how much he loves you? Do you see what he has done for you and how much he values you? And we see Jesus standing with us this way. All the hate, all the accusations, the canceling, the persecution, the judgments that people make about us no longer matter. Because there's only one verdict that matters. And as Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The God who did not spare his own son to get us and redeem us and to restore us. Is he the one who condemns us? Uh Uh-uh. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world can do whatever it wants to us. So we're left this morning with a choice. Jesus or the world? We can't love both. We can't serve both. We can't be friends with both. And I'll end with this. Only one of those options will love you back. Let's pray.
God, I pray this morning that repentance would take place in our hearts, God, in my heart. God, that we would repent of the ways in which we are entrenched in the world, the way we seek the world to find our worth and our happiness and our satisfaction. And God, repentance is such a beautiful, great thing that we get to do because we get to re-experience your love every time we repent because, Jesus, you taught us that when we repent, God, you're not an angry boss. You're not a disappointed friend. You, you're a loving father, and you're just waiting for us to come back to you, to return to you, to restore us to your arms. God, would there be massive repentance in this place this morning? Jesus' name.